Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to week one of a 31-week experience at Timber Creek Church we're calling The Story. We are starting chronologically going from the book of Genesis to Revelation, all in order, 31 different stories, 31 different uh, uh, curtains that rise, 31 uh, different behind-the-scenes looks at, at what God intended from start to finish and how we're still in the middle of that beautiful story. Uh, everybody pull your worship guide out. You, you hopefully received when you walk through our doors. Today is week one and we're in creation, but also what we've given you is this story timeline. And really the story of God, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it is broken down into five main acts, like a play would have an act one and act two or, or three acts. There's five creative acts of God. We're living right now in act four. We haven't even seen act five unfold yet, but we're living in act four. But you can see on the back of the timeline, we see the different acts of God. And today we're starting act one and we'll be here for a few weeks. And then on the timeline, you can see it correlates with the different acts. What I want to challenge you to do, honestly, as a family, your kids, what, I mean, my kids know so many words of so many songs. I can flip on the radio and I'm like, where did you even hear that song. They just kind of consume the words of the songs that they listen to. I would challenge everybody to, to take the words that are written through these acts and do your best to memorize it. It's a simple way to really unroll the whole story of God by these simple words showing what God has done, what he's doing, what he's going to do. And I think that'll be a great tool for you. In the meantime, on the back of your, uh, your worship guide, let's, let's take this and let's follow along today as I jump into Act 1, Creation, Life as We Know It. What you're going to see starting today and throughout the entire story of God, the real story of God, is you're going to see this repetitive cycle that takes place. The good, the bad, the ugly, there is this cycle that is, that is running underneath. Sometimes it's the focus of the story. Sometimes it's behind the scenes. But it is a repetitive cycle that's going on. And here's the repetitive cycle. This is this cycle that's been going on for generations since the beginning of the garden. And it's this, write it down. The, 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 the cycle is an earthly dilemma which begs for a heavenly solution. Something happening on earth, an issue, a hurt, a wound, a catastrophe, a tragedy, you name it, an earthly dilemma that requires a heavenly solution. Throughout scripture, we're gonna see God provide the heavenly solution for all kinds of earthly dilemmas. And so three stages to that repetitive cycle. There's three stages. You can see them right here on your notes. Let's talk about stage one this morning. The first stage of the repetitive cycle that we see throughout the story is, number one, God creates and it's all good. You can't just say, it's all good. You have to say, it's all good. Everybody with me, ready? It's all good. That's right. God creates and it's all good. He's a good God that has good gifts for his children. And listen, the greatest literary works... That, that we have ever seen, they always tend to start with a fantastic first sentence. Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times. It was the... And you know that's the only thing you know of that entire book. You know many of you, like, that's a, I don't even know what book that is. I just heard it before. Just as powerful the words a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Like, like... 
powerful movies and blockbusters. And, and listen, the, the very first words of a book are going to compel you. Is this even worth listening to? Is this even worth watching? Is this even worth reading? And if I were to open up a book and the first words were, were three cups of salt, you would know that without knowing the cover of the book, you would know you're reading a cookbook. If you didn't know the book was and you just opened it up and read the first line and it says, it was a dark and stormy night. You might think that you're reading a mystery book. You open it up and the first line is three rabbis and a plumber walk into a bar. You know, you know you're reading a joke book, right? Uh, the first line is, is critical. It sets the stage. And the very first line of the story of God sets the scene. It sets the stage. It puts the story into motion. Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is one of the more popular verses in Scripture because it's the first one. Many people, like you, have it memorized. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first sentence tells us who the main character is. And from there, stuff begins to happen. It starts with a big bang, but it's not the kind of big bang you may have read in your science textbook because it's not by accident. It's not by chance. When God speaks, stuff begins to take place. And I want to challenge you. If you can believe the first line, these first 10 words, it's going to help you with the rest of the story. Don't limit God by your own understanding. Trust God that he's as big as he says he is. Trust God that when he says, I created the heavens and the earth, trust him. These 10 simple words, though, if they were a battlefield, they would have created all kinds of uh, monuments and gravesides, questions and controversies around how did we really become? Did we, were we created an image of God or, or did we kind of just like slide out of a, out of a soupy pond uh, in, in, into some kind of amoeba cells? And, and there's all kinds of brilliant people that believe in the theory of evolution and there's all kinds of brilliant people that believe in a creator God. And we can get stuck and talk and get into debates. The truth is, I choose to believe Genesis 1-1 because I believe that you are not an accident. You are here for a very divine purpose. You are here on purpose, for a purpose. And God loved you so much. He had specifics about you. And I believe God is big enough to create you just the way you've been Created, The two great sources of human knowledge come together in that opening scripture. Two great sources of knowledge. And here, and here they are. Nature and revelation. What I want you to understand this morning is um, you will not find and know God through science alone. Science is not the tool, the instrument in which you get to know a personal God. But you can understand nature through science. You can understand nature and God reveals himself to nature. But you can't hug a tree and find God. You, get, you don't find God just by nature. That's the wrong instrument. It would be like trying to find love with a microscope and a pickaxe. Trying to find love with an archaeological dig. Love isn't an artifact. Uh, it, it's a relationship between us. And you don't dig it out. You discover it through, relation, through revelation. 
And so God chooses in his own way to reveal to us through nature his divine being, the intricacies of his design. But we don't know it all. We don't understand it all. And there's a certain amount of revelation. I was talking with one, uh, a brilliant one of our high school students here in, in church last week. And I, I was talking about, hey, how do you wrestle with the, the ideas of the Bible and the questions? And, and, and she said something great. She said, I think that we just want all the answers, but we need to be okay with a little bit of wonder. We need to be okay with just like the wonder of God and not having in a culture that is dead set on having to have every answer for everything. There's just some things we don't understand and we don't get and we doesn't make sense. It's because God is a lot bigger than you. God is a lot more God than you are, everybody. And he's big enough and smart enough and strong enough to design things through nature, but then also give us kind of like, well, I don't know all there is to know. As we begin to unfold the story, we see this repetition take place as God creates. He, day one, he begins with stars and moon and, and, and lights and there separates the heavens. And day two and day three and day four. And you can read almost in poetic, with this poetic process, he says, uh, and God said, and it was good. Morning, evening, day one. And God said, and it was good, morning and evening, day two. And we see that repetition throughout all of Scripture. And in the first pages of the Bible, we see what matters most to God. We see that it's not just the nature, but that he desires to have relationship. That relationship is critically important to all creator God. Before I move from here, let me explain something to you. God could have chosen to reveal himself of how loving he was, how powerful he was, how majestic he was, how, how, how kind he was. The very first thing he chooses to reveal about himself is he, he's a creative God. He's a creative God. Now we see in Genesis 1.26, if you get down into the chapter, God says, let us make man in mankind in our image. Notice these two, two uh, words here, the us and the our. We can immediately see in the first chapter of Genesis that, that God is not by himself. He is God, but God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us make mankind in our image. So we see the, the all-knowing God in three persons, but we also see that you and I were image bearers of God. I loved in that encounter video, uh, in the little story video about encounter that starts tonight at 6. And you can sign up at the Next Steps booth for that. I, you can see in one of the testimonies that you heard, uh, Amanda said, I believed all kinds of stuff about myself. And what was the aha moment is when I started believing what, what God thought about me. You're an image bearer of God. You're valuable. You're, you're a work of creative art that God has set into motion and he loves you very much. Let us make mankind in our own image. And let them rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. You and I aren't just animals that walk straight up. We, we, we are above the animals. We're above the other creation. None of the other creation was made in his image. We are the ones that get that, that special mark. We, we have importance that, 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 that even the angels don't have. You have an image of God in you, a spirit given to you by God, and you're above just being an animal. But then we find that for Adam there was no suitable helper that was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. 
And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. Now a lot of scholars differ on, on the opinion of what happened here. Um, a lot of scholars believe that, that uh, the reason man was made uh, first is because uh, had he made woman first before all of creation, she would have been giving him notes on, you know, that color of blue or what he needs to do next. Or I don't know if I would have done it that way. But you do you. You do you. God didn't want to deal with that. So, And the other side of it is that, you know, God made man first. And then he stepped back and said, oh, I can do a whole lot better than that. So he created, you know, he, he created woman. Regardless of where you are, he, he, he created both and he loves both. And both are mutually valuable and both have a place in responsibility in the garden. And he creates man and woman. Adam and his wife were both, one of the best scriptures in all of history right here. Adam and Eve and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They felt no, completely vulnerable, completely exposed, completely innocent, completely externally focused. Listen, I don't know. If you're a psychologist, you may have some words for me later, but there is, a, there is an ongoing dream I have, and it's that I come up to this place right, right here. And I'm dreaming, I'm talking, and you're going, and I got no pants on. It's a I, There's something psychological. It goes on. I mean, I've had the dream a hundred times. And, and I would not be naked and feel no shame. I would be naked and be scared to death. But there's just this innocence that we read. Just this purity of the garden and this is the way God intended it. And when you read Act 1 and you read Act 5, he comes full circle. It's not that we're all at the end just going to be walking around naked and feel no shame. But there is this living with God with innocence and vulnerability and not focused on ourselves, but focused on him. God saw all that he had made. And see, you see in day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, he says it was good. And by the time he makes man, when he makes man, he says, it was very good. You're the most valuable creation. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And at this point, there are no Ten Commandments. There are no rules. There are no regulations except one little lane, one guardrail, one simple step. This beautiful garden run around naked, no chiggers. No, there were not mosquitoes until after the fall. I mean, no mosquito bites, because that would have been really hard rocking around naked. But there's this one little commandment, and you know how it is. You give your kids nine things to play with, but you say, stay away from the iron. You know, you know what they're going to play with. The iron. Here, here, we, here we see it happen. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. No Ten Commandments. And we don't know how long it was until they got here. Could have been days. Could have been centuries. They were, they were eating of the tree of life. There was really no time like we understand it to be now. There, there was just purity. Image of God. 
and for decades or millennia, living in the garden until we get into the next stage. God is creative God and it's all good. Step two, stage two, man sins and everything falls apart. And Genesis chapter 3 plays a pivotal role in our understanding of humanity, our understanding of holiness and sinfulness. And it's here that we've already been introduced with the main character of the story, God, not Adam and Eve. And now we're introduced to the primary antagonist of the entire story, that is the enemy. He is real. The devil is real. There is not a little mini devil running around trying to, to harm your kids. The devil is bi- just as big on kids as he is on adults. The devil is real. The devil has one job and one job only. In fact, John chapter 10, Jesus himself talks about the enemy, the thief, he calls him there, comes only but to. In fact, he doesn't have like any other agenda, no other thing. He, he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And we begin to see how this unfolds in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent... The enemy in the form of a serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? That's my little serpent there. (laughs) Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Last week I talked about that's the ancient lie that that, that the enemy wants us to question the authority of God's word. Did God really say? You know, the devil's dusty tactics, they don't get new. He's He's not a creative enemy. God's the creative genius. The devil's got like a small little pail of tactics Just some dusty old tactics that he started in the garden and he's not creative to form anymore. They all kind of come down to these main things. And he starts with, he questions God's word. Did God really say? He also, you may want to write it down in your notes, he denies God's word. He says, die? You won't surely die? What's he talking about? No, no, no. Lean in. Let me really tell you what's going on. He's a counterfeit enemy that always wants to maneuver your life. Steal, kill, and destroy you. Maneuver your life away from the pure, innocent, holy, right path to a counterfeit All about you, what you can gain, what you can do, what you can become. You won't surely die. He questions, he denies. Then he wants to reverse God's word. Because God says you're going to die. He said, no, 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 no. Your eyes actually will be open. See, what you think you see right now is not what you need to be seeing. And this is going to give you a step up. This is going to help you really live your life the way you're meant. Like, like he's just all about rules and stuff. Just one. But, yeah, he's all about rules. And he, you, he doesn't want you to have any fun. He wants you just, just to kind of be restricted. And if it did, it, it, why, why would he even make this tree and put that fruit if he didn't want you to eat it? Come on. Come on, your eyes will be open. Dusty tactics. And then he's got three very simple ways that he allures using these tactics. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, towards the end of the Bible, uh, we see the author say this. Everything in the, pardon me, everything in the world, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and what? The pride of life. They come not from the Father, not from the creative God, but from the... 
world, from, from the enemy, from the serpent, from the evil one. These come, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Pretty much every sin you ever have to deal with, anything that becomes a temptation, kind of fits within those three primary categories. And Eve buys the lie. Look what happens. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, pleasing to the eye, lust of the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. I can be like God. I can make some rules. I can run my own race. I can kind of decide who's in charge here. Pride of life. She took some. I sure ate it. She just ate it right up. Now, she also gave some to her husband. Now, don't forget this. Who was with her? You know, we, we get this all upset about Eve. You know, oh, Eve, that woman never eating that fruit. Man, woman, women, women will put us in there in the first place, everybody. But yeah, like, her husband was kind of like hanging out. I don't know if he was distracted by the dandelions or what, but... But she, she gave something to her husband. She said, hey, he said it's really good. And it's, it's just really, you know, nice. And you want something. Like, I don't know. I guess. <laughs> Absentee husband, all kinds of problems going to start. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And it's so interesting to me that this is their first thing. Like, they realize they're naked. So they sew fig leaves together and they make coverings for themselves. Now, why do this? Because they're the only two humans on earth. Why feel the need to have to cover themselves? Because, friends, in every single one of us, there is this innate understanding that we have an earthly dilemma, that, 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 that we're trying to fix something. And the only solution is a heavenly one. But we will use all means necessary in our own hands to try and sew together our own answers, our own solutions to the earthly issues. If I just do a little bit more of this, if do a little bit less of this, then my husband will finally come around. But there's an earthly dilemma in him that begs for a heavenly solution. And you just can't become a different person and expect that all of the earthly dilemmas there are going to be fixed by you. you got to let God be God, creative God, bring the heavenly solution. And they tried to cover themselves. And this is the process that we see happen from one person to the next throughout the story of God. They try to cover it up. You remember Jesus, when Peter denies him three times? He's denying him because he's trying to cover up. He tries to, he tries to sew fig leaves together in his excuses. And we're all dealing with this issue. The man sins and everything falls apart. But what's happening is there's an upper story and a lower story. Now, the upper story, God is revealing his will and his way. And he's saying to us, walk in that. Follow me. You can follow me and trust me. But the lower story, here's what's happening. We're trying our shortcuts. We've got sin struggles. We're doing it our own way. And it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. The very first two humans born, Adam and Eve, were created. But the first two humans born, Cain and Abel, as they grow up, one becomes a rancher and one becomes a farmer, and they're both bringing gifts to God. And 
Abel's gifts are on time. They're the choice. They're the choice uh, pieces of the firstborn of his flock. Like they're valuable to him. And the Bible says that Cain, after some time or when he got around to it, brought kind of leftovers to God. And God was honoring the, the diligence and the generosity and the stewardship of Abel. But on Cain, he was not honoring the offerings. You know what happened? Cain, that was an earthly, that was a dilemma on the lower story. It's a dilemma. He's not accepting my gifts like he is Abel's. And so he has an earthly solution and he kills his brother. He kills the, the first death, uh, the, the first human death. He kills his brother, Abel. I mean, you th- it just gets worse and worse. Now, now, let me ask you this. Have you guys, have you ever, have you ever had eyes that were bigger than your stomach? Or have you ever seen something on TV that looked too good to be true and you order it and it's the Abshocker 2000 and you get it and you're like, this is going to be the answer to my six-pack abs. But really it just like puts four burn marks on your stomach because it just burns you instead of makes you into David Beckham. You know, it just, it just burns you. Not that I've ever done that. You know, you see a dessert in the buffet line. You say, ooh, I'm going to have a lot of that. And you pile on. But then when you taste it, it's like, oh, that was not as good as I thought it was. We, t- we have that tendency. You know, okay, a few years ago, uh, my wife and I made a big mistake, and we bought a dog. And uh, no, I'm kidding. We love our dog kind of still. And we, we, we bought this dog. It was going to be a surprise for the kids. going to be a surprise at Christmas. And so at Christmas, my kids were small, smaller at the time, and uh, it was six or seven years ago, we buy this Labradoodle, and the very end of Christmas, we bring in the little crate, and we open it up, and they are like so excited. I, uh, this, this is that, that moment. They, the, the, the little Labrador, little Molly comes into their life, and we, we shoot this picture, and they're so pumped up, and I'm pumped, and Janet's pumped, like, Merry Christmas. Thank you, Santa. And, you know, and, and it's just a beautiful moment. But in the hubbub of the holidays, I forgot to prepare for this gift. I, I, didn't have, I didn't have a dog bowl for water or a dog bowl for food. I didn't have a dog food. We didn't have kibbles and bits. We didn't have a kibble. Like, it's it. Nothing. Didn't have treats. Didn't have a dog bone to chew on. We, we had not, not a pooper scooper. Nothing. And so after we opened the gift, I say, man, we got to get this dog some water and some food. What's, oh, it's Christmas Day. I say, here, I'm going to go to Walgreens because Walgreens is open. And I'm going to go to Walgreens. I'm going to get the stuff. I'm driving from, and we, just, we were living in the Tan Parsonage on campus at the time. We, I left the parking lot of the church. I didn't even make it to Walgreens. I get a phone call. It's my wife. Hey, babe, do you need me to pick something up? <laughs> Jeremy... We don't want the dog. We don't want it. He's biting. He's biting the kids. The kid, I hear Graham in the back. Take it back. Take it back. Sage is uncomfortable. Just, just, we need to give him back, baby. We can't. I said, we are going to keep that dog. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. I haven't even made it to Walgreens. I haven't even gotten a kibble or a bit. You're going to keep that dog. And six years later, we still got that dog. And Janet, every once in a while, does give me a call. Take this dog, you know. But, but, but here's what's crazy. Here's, here's, here's the connection. We don't even get 
five chapters into the entire story. We get to Genesis chapter 6. And the Lord sees how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. When sin enters, it destroys. In our vulnerability, in our exposing of ourselves in shame and guilt, it's a vicious cycle. Man sins and it falls apart. And by chapter 6, verse 1, God is writing a story, but he's showing us our propensity to try and do things on our own. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. The King James says, and he grieved. His heart was grieved, like a widow that stands next to a casket. He has ultimate emotion. Your emotion has flesh mixed into it, and it's, it's given by God, but it's twisted because you are human. You're made in the image, but you're not God. But God, his purity of emotion, he grieves over how we just keep choosing the apple. We keep choosing our way. We want the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. It's an earthly dilemma that needs a heavenly solution. So here comes another man on the scene, Noah. And he was a righteous man, good man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. And you know, it took him years to build the ark. This isn't in your Bible, but in Jewish tradition, in in, in, uh, Jewish tradition handed down by rabbis, they say that before Noah could even build the ark, he had to plant trees. That's how long it took him because they didn't even have the wood to make the, the... the the boards to make the tree. And Noah was patient. He was invested personally, relationally. He was in the middle of the Turkish desert believing it's going to rain and flood the earth. His friends were probably saying, Noah, like, where are you going to float this thing? His friends meeting him at Starbucks. I mean, this whole idea, Noah, like, what what are you even doing? You're spending your kids' inheritance? What's going on? But he was invested. He was a righteous man, blameless. And, And yet, though, He himself has issues. He himself loses it. He himself has the propensity to sin. In fact, we see the lower and the upper story in Noah. And here's what happens with the lower story. God chooses Noah's family, and they start over. But there's something happening in the upper story. There's a lesson he's teaching all of us, and it's this. Even the most righteous people aren't good enough in and of themselves Because Noah and his kids, they fail. Noah plants a vineyard, gets drunk, causes issues with his kids. His kids get into issues, all kinds of stuff. Nobody's righteous enough in and of ourselves. We have an earthly dilemma that requires a heavenly solution. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and Shem, Ham and Japheth like. We're only a few chapters in. This is a pretty bleak, pretty dark, pretty serious issue. But stage three, God promises, and there is still hope. God creates, and it's all good. Man sins, and everything falls apart. But in the middle of those cycles, he is always bringing glimmers of help and hope 
there's still hope. You know, if you watch a landscape artist who paints pictures of landscape and you, you peek over the shoulder of a, you know, kind of a Bob Ross, Thomas Kincaid kind of painter and you see this, this landscape and you begin to watch, you begin to watch the artist and, and it is a bleak, wintry scene. It's dark, it's ominous, it's mysterious and the clouds are a deep, deep charcoal and, and, and the mountains are cloudy and, and there's, there, you, the artist gives this image of, of hard wind blowing and pine trees have blown over and snow is falling and has covered the ground and there in the, the back of the painting, a couple hundred yards away, there's a tiny little cabin and it looks a little scary, a little mysterious, a little ominous. But in one little moment, the artist can transform the entire painting. And in this one little moment, the, the artist takes the tip of the brush and dips it in the yellow paint. And with one just, just one stroke, just one, one dot, he changes the entire feeling of the painting because he, he puts light in the cabin. He puts light in the little mysterious cabin and all of a sudden, instead of a hopeless, cold, bleak scene, there's life and there's safety and there's shelter for the weary traveler. And although we read the story and we see a lot of bleak winter, God is giving us little, little touches of light. That's why, that's why Jesus is the light of the world, everybody. He gives us touches of light in the middle and I don't wonder how many of you are dealing with some wintry moments how many of you are dealing with some deep dark ominous clouds and some wind that's blowing and you need Jesus to show up and just paint the light into your life we see it all throughout scripture we see these hints of hope we can see right here in, in Genesis chapter 3 as God is talking to the serpent He's giving consequences to Adam and Eve. He also gives consequences to the enemy. And he says, hey, I'm going to put enmity, clash, struggle, push tension between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this is an important scripture because it's the very first hint, the very first brushstroke of a messianic prophecy, a prophecy of the Messiah the anointed one, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one. Because through that seed, a earthly being that's completely divine and completely human is going to come through that seed and that, that person we know as Jesus is going to crush your head. You'll strike his heel. There'll, there'll, be a, there'll be a hurt. There'll be a wound. We see that in the cross Jesus has defeated the enemy. He's crushed the head of the enemy. And as we go through life, there's still oppression. There's still hurt. The enemy is still, but ultimately in Act 5, the enemy's head is crushed. We see it in Genesis 3. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Again, why did Adam and Eve feel like they needed to cover themselves with fig leaves? In the same way, why did God choose to sacrifice an animal. This is most likely the very first time Adam and Eve have ever seen anything die. 
the first time they've ever seen a shedding of blood. The Bible says God does it. He, he kills the animal. Man, this is, this is gruesome, but he, but he skins it. And he gives them garments and he covers them because there was no going back to the way things exactly were yet. In the meantime, the only way they could cover their sin, something had to die. And he's showing us a brushstroke of light, a brushstroke of hope that through process, through a long time, they practiced animal sacrifice that the shedding of the blood, in fact, Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. There's no remission of sin. So they began this practice that when they would mess up, when they would not follow God, something would die. And what it says, the, the, the lower story that's going on is, when you sin, people suffer. When you sin, things die. The only way to cover your sin is something has to die. And he's showing them and showing them and showing them and showing them. an earthly dilemma which begs for a heavenly solution because the sacrificed animal is an earthly solution. An earthly dilemma that has me doing an earthly solution to try and cover up the earthly issue with an earthly sacrifice. And yet when you read, you see that at some point in Act 3, Jesus, the Son of the living God, takes on human form, steps onto the stage of the story lives a sinless, perfect life. At 30 years old, steps down a hill into the Jordan River and his, his relative John says these words. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want you to see something important. Jesus doesn't come and it's, it's not another partial covering. He doesn't cover it. He doesn't cover the sin. He does what with the sin? Takes away the sin. And it's a lower story and it's an upper story and it's your story and it's my story. You aren't good enough. You aren't God enough. And he had to show us through process he had to show us through the trials and temptations and the propensities of sin like you and I just, we live with, that there's a greater solution. Jesus is the answer to all of life's issues, people. He's the answer. Well, that sounds pretty simple. <laughs> if it were so simple, everybody would be trusting him. But we have our own ideas. We've got our own methods. We've got our own trees and our own apples. Trust him with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. That's what we're learning. God promises there's hope. Would you pray with me this morning? With your eyes closed and your head bowed. If you're here and you feel like you've been through a bleak winter and you're looking for the moments of light and you're asking Jesus to illuminate, you need hope for some, you need hope and some help in some areas. This is not a whether I'm following Jesus or not, this is just, I, I got some, I got some needs and I need Jesus to show me and illuminate my path. If that's you, would you just raise a hand up physically, financially, spiritually, emotionally, relationally? Yeah, yeah. Jesus, 
in only the way you can, would you bring light? Would you bring the brushstroke of your goodness and hope in Jesus' mighty name? Heads bowed, eyes still closed with your hands down. Now, if you're here and you've not invited Jesus to be the main character of your story, you've kind of been doing it on your own, doing your own thing, trying to cover cover your, yourself. And you recognize that you need a heavenly solution because your earthly solutions have not been getting you very far. We all have an earthly dilemma that requires a heavenly solution. If you're here today and you want to start new or start again a relationship with Jesus, if that's you and you say, Pastor, that, yeah, I, I, I want to do that. Would you pray for me today? If you want to be included in that prayer, you want me to help you pray that prayer, would you put a hand straight up in the air? I, I need, I need Jesus in my life. Anybody else? Many hands. Anybody else? Several hands all across the auditorium. Jesus sees you way before I could. He saw the intention of your heart. You can put your hands down. And I just want to pray with you. Father, for those that raise their hands, may they surrender to you. In fact, in your own words, you say, Jesus, I surrender to you. Be the main character of my life. Be the center of my life, the Savior and Lord of my life. Cover me because I can't cover my own issues. Sin separates me from you, but you bring me back to God. You bridge the gap that I've been trying to bridge on my own. And I thank you, Lord, that you're not mad at me today, but you've given me hope. In fact, you've already taken away sin. You've given me the passage to a relationship with you when you died on the cross, and then you rose again. You are a powerful God. I believe you are who you say you are. Thank you for giving me this moment. I will follow you. For all of us, Lord, may we make you the center of the story. You deserve no other place. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Come on, make some noise this morning for those that are making Christ Lord and Savior of their lives. Men and women, young and old. I saw some little kids even put their hands up this morning. So excited. They're making that decision. We don't want to get lost on that this morning. The people's lives are being changed. The Bible says the old is gone and the new has come. God's doing something fresh and new in people's lives today. Let's stand together. It's so cool. One more time, I want to put our hands together for those that have made a decision for Christ. Come on, make some noise today. Here's why it's so important, because there's two stories that are going on. There's the upper story and there's the lower story. As we're rejoicing here for people making decisions to follow Christ in heaven, the Bible says that all of heaven is throwing a big old party when one person, just one, puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? God is up to something here at Timber Creek Church. We're so excited about what God's doing in your life. Hey, if you want to sign up for Starting Point, you want to sign up for uh, any of the other ministries that are happening you saw on the screen, go to that starting that uh, information booth out there in the lobby. Let me pray over you today. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We worship you. God, we want to turn our eyes towards you, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now bless us as we go. May we walk in your blessing in Jesus' name. God bless you. We'll see you next week.